Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and what a beautiful fall morning. And what a great uh, week that we had last weekend, and what about that win? Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I'd like to welcome everyone to this morning's More Than the Score. How many people are here for the very first time, if you can raise your hand? Well, welcome. If you look around, as you can see, more than the score is an amazing opportunity and people keep coming back and back and back. My name is Cindy Frederick and I'm the Associate Vice President uh, for the Alumni and Parent Engagement Office and we are the sponsor of the Lifetime Learning Program with the Alumni Association to bring this program to you. I do want to pause a minute, you've seen me do the introductions two times in a row and for people that have been here uh, with us for the last 13 years, you're missing Althea Brooks. And everyone's saying, where's, and she's the Senior Director for Lifetime Learning in, in our office, and she is the curator of the More Than the Score season. And she is not sick. She has not found another job. She is still on duty from Oxford. At 9.33, we got a text message to make sure we were doing everything correctly. <laughs> so even though Althea is at the UVA at Oxford program, we have 40 alumni, parents, and friends. Uh, she'll be back on Wednesday. But do not fear. Uh, more than the score is in her heart and in her mind and in her text messages to us to ensure that's a good program. So welcome. We're glad you're here. A few housekeeping tips, if you could please silence your cell phones. And also, as I uh, reminded everyone last week, we are moving to electronic surveys instead of the paper forms. Again, we, Althea really takes those comments seriously, and she's right now developing the season for next year. So if you have topics of interest, please let us know so that we can begin uh, to select the faculty speakers for the next season. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Christine Mahoney. She is a professor at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, and she's the Director for Social Entrepreneurship at the University of Virginia. Her research studies social justice, advocacy, and direct action through social innovation and impact investing. She is an accomplished author of two books, her first book, Brussels versus the Beltway, is a comparative study of lobbying in the U.S. and the EU. And her second book, Failure and Hope, Fighting for the Rights of Forcibly Displaced, was based on her fieldwork in seven conflict zones in Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, and Latin America. And in, my, in our conversation this morning, she just returned this past week from three weeks from field research in Mexico. And so we're so delighted that you are here. Christine holds her BA, MA, and PhD from Penn State University, where she studied politics. She previously was an assistant professor at Syracuse University and has served as a Fulbright Fellow, visiting scholar at Oxford, and received the Emerging Scholar Award from the American Political Science Association. Please join me in welcoming Christine Mahoney to More Than the Score. Good morning. Thank you all for coming out. Um, I know that there has been some exciting talks about sports and data. I'm going to talk uh, for a bit about a heavier topic this morning. But then I'm going to shift to talking about an idea that is hopeful and optimistic and I believe will work. 
And I think what you will also find surprising about this idea is that whether you are on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum, most people can agree that this will be effective at improving, improving lives and um, that it will it'll be in a way that is in kind of supporting the private sector. Uh, and so we'll talk a bit about that idea. And then finally, at the end, I'll talk a bit about the fieldwork that I just got back from in Mexico, also a controversial uh, topic. And we'll talk about how this proposal, again, can see support from, from both sides of the political continuum. So I've spent the last decade researching global displacement. And so when I talk about forced displacement, I'm talking about people that are running for their lives. After World War II, the international community of states decided that if people were running for their lives, we should agree to protect them until they can return home safely. Some people refer to these as refugees. If you've run for your life and you've crossed an international border, you're a refugee. Sometimes you run for your life, but you haven't crossed a border. And so we often refer to those people as internally displaced persons. Their conditions are similar. They have often lost everything they own. Uh, they've often lost loved ones. Uh, and when they get to where they're going, they find it very difficult to start again. And I'm going to talk a bit about why that is. How many of you, let's just see a quick show of hands, have heard about the Syrian refugee crisis. Okay, pretty much everyone. This crisis has been going on now for eight years. It, it has been described as the second deadliest of the 21st century. Not only have a half a million people been killed, but over 11 million people have run for their lives. About 5 million have been internally displaced inside Syria, and 6 million have crossed international borders. Most of them are in countries that are still poor, right? We've heard most of the news is of people washing up and arriving at Europe's borders. But the vast majority of Syrian refugees are in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq. And when they get to where they're going, they find that not only have they gone through incredible trauma, as I've described, lost their worldly possessions and often loved ones, but when they get to where they're going, they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to take care of themselves and their families. While this crisis has received a lot of media attention because of the scale of the displacement, what many people do not realize is that there are 65 other protracted displacement crises worldwide, with a total now of over 70 million people forced from their home. This is the highest level of forced human displacement the world has ever seen, it's higher now than it was at the end of the greatest world war, World War II. And so when people are running for their lives and they've gone through incredible trauma and they get to where they're going, in those first days, temporary aid is incredibly important. People need some food. They need to have a roof over their head, which is often a tent over their head. They need emergency life-saving aid. Everyone agrees on that pretty much, either side of the political spectrum. But the other thing that has changed is not only do we have more people displaced than ever before, but when you get to where you're going, you will be displaced on average between 17 and 26 years. Decades, right? We are in a new situation where there's failed nations, Somalia, Syria. More than half of Syria's population 
has moved. The country is destroyed. There aren't schools. There aren't roads. There aren't any kind of infrastructure. And so people can't go home. The similar uh, in Somalia. This is a picture from the Dadaab refugee camp where I did field work. Over 500,000 people have been sitting, waiting in the dust for over 26 years uh, to go home, and they can't go home. And so what I think is important to understand here is while historically temporary food and aid may have been sufficient, if you're displaced for 26 years, temporary food and aid is no longer sufficient you need to be allowed to take care of yourself and your family. And so I did field work in seven conflict zones around the world, refugee camps like the one on the Somali border, internal displacement camps in northern Uganda, paramilitary-controlled zones in slums in Colombia where there's over 4 million people internally displaced. And in case after case, what you find is that people who are incredibly vulnerable and have lost everything are saddled with a new barrier, which is a man-made barrier, that they can't take care of themselves and their families. They're not allowed to start businesses. They're not allowed to take jobs. So why is that? There are aid organizations that recognize that if you're displaced for decades and you've been born in a camp and you've been raised in a camp and you maybe even graduated school in a camp, that at the end of that, you should be allowed to get a job. And people have advocated for this. There's been humanitarian aid organizations that have come together and started an anti-warehousing campaign. The United Nations and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees has said people need durable solutions. They can't go home. Very, very few are going to get resettled in places like the United States and Europe. They're going to be, you know, the vast, vast majority of people are going to be in these poor countries of first asylum. But what I found when I did my field work and I interviewed UN officials and humanitarian actors and local human rights organizations and refugee support organizations is that it is incredibly difficult for the organizations helping these people to advocate for the right to work. First, advocacy is not the priority. These people's jobs are just keeping people alive. And so they're focusing on getting water to people, getting food to people, really the most basic things. They're already short-staffed, and they're short on cash, and they really don't have the bandwidth to engage in advocacy. Second, the displaced are not the priority for national governments. Most governments of the world are now democracies. They have to respond to their citizens and their citizens' needs. Many of these countries are poor, and their own citizens need and are advocating for, the, for access to services. And the displaced are just very, very low down on the totem pole. The third reason it's really difficult for the organizations out there helping people to advocate for right to work is that they have no political leverage. So I want to take a moment here and talk about this because it's an important piece of the solution. So in the United States, if we want to see policy change, we kind of have two levers of power. The first is votes, right? So let me see a show of hands. How many of you have ever written a letter to your member of Congress? Okay, many of us, right? We write to our members of Congress and we say, if you do this or if you don't do that, I'm not going to vote for you in the next election. That's powerful, right? That's a lever of power. Another lever of power we have is money. So we've often seen, you know, there's the more political and contested idea of money in politics in D.C. We've all heard about it. But there is a maybe less controversial way where you see a new brewery come to town and the brewery is going to bring 300 jobs. 
And the brewery says, we're going to bring these 300 jobs and we're going to bring economic growth, but it requires a couple pieces of policy change. And what we often see is those policies get changed, right? So that's another lever. UN and implementing partners, so they're these non-governmental organizations, they have no leverage, right? They're working in sometimes hostile host countries, sometimes friendly host countries, under the kind of good graces of the local national authorities. If they get too political or push too hard, they will be kicked out. And so we've seen examples of this, Medicine Sans Frontier, which is Doctors Without Borders. When they have pushed for rights in countries, they get kicked out by national authorities. This has happened in Sudan, it's happened in Myanmar or Burma. And so the aid organizations have no leverage and they can't achieve their life-saving mission if they get kicked out. And so they just really can't push too hard. And then I want to talk about two final barriers and then we're going to talk about what will work. Fourth is corruption. Uh, many of the places I did field work, uh, corruption is a situation. I talked with aid organizations that were trying to support refugees on the Burmese border. They were bringing in food shipments. They were bringing in bamboo shipments to help rebuild huts after a flood. And local authorities shook them down. They said, we're not going to let you in and do your life-saving mission if you don't give us the tires off your SUV, if you don't give us 30 of the bags of rice. And so if you have a situation where local authorities are pressing aid organizations, that's not a very good advocacy environment, right? The aid organizations can't really be pressing back to see policy change. And then even in countries where there's not a hostility to the displaced, so if we take a place like Colombia, Colombia is concerned about its 4 million internally displaced people. These are people that are running from their lot for their lives from rebel groups, largely, or narco-traffickers, human traffickers, weapon traffickers. But Colombia doesn't have the tax base or the capacity to actually care for these people. And so they don't really have the ability to help reintegrate them into local economies. And so for all of these reasons, for the past 60 years, increasingly people have been displaced for decades. They've not been allowed to work, not allowed to take care of themselves and their families. And advocacy to change that has failed miserably. So in my book, I proposed a new strategy. Um, as we mentioned, I run social entrepreneurship at UVA. It's a minor, a set of classes, programs. We have over 500 students taking classes every year now, learning about how we can use business for social good, how we can invest for a financial return while also achieving social impact. And so I proposed that we could use things like microfinance and impact investing to, number one, directly improve the lives of the displaced by supporting displaced entrepreneurs and the host communities that are hosting them, as well as use those funds as a lever of power to incentivize national governments to allow the right to work. Everywhere I went, I found entrepreneurs. Even though people aren't legally allowed to work, and even though they've lost everything, they start. They have, they, I think they invented the pop-up shop, if you've been to a pop-up shop. They pop up corner stores, ice cream shops, uh, rug weaving cooperatives, hair salons. Every refugee camp I've been in and cities hosting the displaced, they start over. If you actually look at the Fortune 400 in the United States, 40% of the Fortune 400 companies, or Fortune 500 companies, sorry, were started by refugees, immigrants, and their children. 
these people uh, have a different understanding of risk, right? They've risked everything, so starting a new little business might not seem as scary, right? Often they don't have other options either because they're not legally allowed to work in the formal market, and so they're they're being they're hustling, right? They're they're starting their companies. And so after I published the book, um, I went to the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. Um, and my husband at the time, who's a social entrepreneur, and he's worked for years in the global sanitation space and water space, clean water around the world, we were talking about how do we get somebody to do this idea that I wrote in an academic book. And so this is the part of the talk where I'm going to tell you a little bit about the journey of shifting from rigorous academic research into engaged scholarship, uh, and how can we bring research that we're doing at the university alive in the world in a way that could perhaps and hopefully improve people's lives. And so my husband and I, uh, a week and a half before we got married, went to Istanbul, and we talked with people at the UN, at the World Bank, nonprofits like Mercy Corps and World Vision, people that were working day in, day out with the displaced, corporate people, investors. And what we found is everybody agreed, this is a good idea, someone should do it, but nobody had the time, the bandwidth, or the money to try it. And so at Thanksgiving, we went to Iraq. Why did we go to Iraq? Well, we wanted to go somewhere we could think about how do we invest in refugee entrepreneurs, but do so in a way that we're not breaking the law. As I mentioned, almost everywhere in the world, refugees are not legally allowed to work. They're not legally allowed to start a business. And so obviously, we can't go into a country and invest in an entrepreneur and break the law. So we wanted to find a country where refugees were legally allowed to work. And there's only two countries in the world. Iraq was one of them. And so we went to Iraq, and we met with entrepreneurs. And people, again, this is a Syrian refugee that popped up a little uh, school supply shop uh, and was doing quite well. And what we found is that there was that same entrepreneurial spirit there, People definitely could have benefited from microloans so they could grow their businesses, hire more people, hire both refugees and host community members. Uh, there was one challenge. After decades of essentially mismanagement by Saddam Hussein's administration, there was a huge lack of liquidity, uh, and there was major policy barriers, tension between uh, Iraqi central government and Kurdish government. And so we went back to the drawing board. We had lots of summits. We had lots of conference panels, dinners, and meetings. And we found, shockingly, that everyone agreed. The private sector and investors were putting money on the table. Hundreds of millions of dollars were committed from the private sector and from investors saying, we need to do something about the global displacement crisis. It is the biggest in the history of the world. It is a defining problem of our time. The private sector needs to do something. At the same time, you had aid organizations, nonprofits that, you know, usually there's sometimes a tension between public and private. The nonprofits were saying, we need the private sector to get involved. The, the need is so huge. Aid and charity and government aid is just not sufficient to solve this problem. We need them involved. And we had organizations, international organizations like the World Bank and the UN and the IMF saying, this needs to happen. But the other thing that was surprising is not only did you have very disparate groups all agreeing, it was also unclear how we proceed. 
because the, in, the investors didn't understand the reality on the ground and the challenges refugees were facing. And the aid organizations weren't business people, and they didn't understand how to get entrepreneurs ready and connect them with capital. The you know, investors were looking for Silicon Valley-type companies, and entrepreneurs on the ground didn't know how to talk. So there really needed to be almost a matchmaker, somebody in between doing the research, making the connections. And so after about a year of meetings and summits and gatherings and information gathering, my husband launched the Refugee Investment Network along with Tim Docking, who is his co-manager, the support of the Global Development Incubator, and support from organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, USA for the UNHCR, the McGovern Foundation. It is now a network touching over 300 different private sector investors a, has a steering committee of over 20 experts and in, impact investors. And it is moving this idea forward that we can have a new approach, a new approach that recognizes and sees the value in refugees and the displaced people as people that they may have lost everything in the world, but they haven't lost their business acumen. They, don't, they haven't forgotten how to run their bakery or run their hair shop um, they can be incredible contributors with new ideas and new ways of thinking to economies. And so the mission is to shift the dialogue about the value of refugees and create and show that investments in the displaced and the host communities hosting them can actually measurably improve their lives and grow economies. And so one of their first big pieces of research was a report called Paradigm Shift. And it makes this case that we need humanitarians working together with the private sector in a way that unlocks new capital to invest in refugee entrepreneurs, refugee supporting companies, and funds that invest in refugees and their host communities. I think what's really important and interesting about this is that the foreword was co-written by one of the heads of one of the most important refugee agencies, the USA for the UNHCR, and it was co-written with Bain Capital, which is one of the biggest asset managers. What we're seeing is from both the private sector and the public sector and the nonprofit sector is that there is a realization that to tackle the biggest challenges facing humanity, displacement being one of them, we need these sectors working closely together. And so the Refugee Investment Network is this connect connective tissue. It helps entrepreneurs polish their pitches and connect with investors, global investors around the world. And it helps investors understand the context that the displaced are coming from, what their needs are as customers and as employees, um, and helps move this concept forward. They developed the refugee lens, which is, if you've heard of gender lens investing, it's similar. It gives investors a framework. The hundreds of millions and close to a billion dollars now that are on the table, those investors need a framework to understand how to invest. And so the refugee lens um, kind of categorizes deals, investment deals, as refugee-led, refugee-founded, refugee-supporting. Um, or funds that are investing in refugee microfinance, small, medium-sized enterprise loans. And so I want to give you a couple examples of these types of companies, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the specific context of Mexico. So this work is happening all over the world, because as I mentioned, there's people displaced all over the world. Um, uh, but as you've likely watched on the nightly news, there is an increasing crisis on our southern border. Um, and so that's something I think we should talk about as well. 
So one example of one of these success stories, a company that can be invested in, that can you know, supply products and services that we all need and love, but also has a really positive impact on refugees, is refugee-founded and refugee-led, is one right here from Virginia, uh, 734 Coffee. This was started by a Sudanese refugee in, who lives now in Virginia, Manyang, and it not only is delicious coffee, but it supports Sudanese, Sudanese refugee farmers in Ethiopia on parallel 734. It's a, like many of the social enterprises we teach about in social entrepreneurship at UVA, it's a hybrid model where there's a for-profit arm selling coffee just like Starbucks, uh, and then there's a nonprofit contribution piece supporting refugees in the field. So this is refugee-founded and refugee-led. Another example of these types of companies that are having a really positive impact and a positive financial return is Needs List. This is not founded by a refugee, but it is providing support, and it has provided over 50,000 um, needs met through this process, where refugees and refugee support organizations can post what they need. So rather than saying, we need this much money, they can say, we need 20,000 diapers for the babies in our, in our um, shelter or something like that. So that's another type of company. There's also refugee funds out there. The Ascend Fund has been launched in Greece. As you know, Greece has had incredible numbers of Syrian refugees uh, coming in some of the most precarious conditions. The Ascend Fund is investing in small and medium-sized enterprises in Greece that will hire refugees as well as host communities and have a positive financial return for investors. And then the last success story I want to mention is Kiva. Has it, let's see a show of hands. Have you seen, heard of Kiva? Okay, wonderful. So Kiva is a microfinance person-to-person platform. You can lend $25 to a small business person in Panama or a farmer in Uganda. They hadn't lent to refugees. So the Refugee Investment Network partnered up with Kiva and other major partners to launch the World Refugee Fund. What we found is that microfinance banks in poor countries were scared to lend to refugees. They thought that they'd be a flight risk. Like, why would we lend to this person? They're just going to get on a boat and go to Greece. And so we supported them as they raised uh, millions of dollars to give these microfinance banks some cash to experiment. And the idea was, try it. Lend to a refugee and see what happens. If you lose it, you, you got the money from international uh, philanthropists anyway, so just try it. And what they found is that refugees are actually the same, if not better, um, as, a, as a bet. So all of these refugees were so excited and happy to have the capital to start their businesses um, and, and I, I think inspired that someone believed in them, and their payment rates were in the 98, 99% level. So this was a proof case, and they are now launching an actual investment fund where investors would receive a return on their investment while they were investing in refugee businesses. And so then this last piece I want to talk about, and then we'll open it up for questions, is the field work I just got back from. So the Refugee Investment Network's ideas have been gaining traction. Um, it's been picked up by the World Economic Forum. Investors are using it as a framework to think about how they can have an impact in this, one of the biggest challenges of our time. 
And so the founders of the Refugee Investment Network started working with an asset management company, right? So we all have our retirement portfolios. Someone needs to manage those. Those are asset managers. There is an asset management company called 17 Asset Management. Their goal is to get a financial return for their investors as well as achieve the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so they were looking at, is there a way that we can invest in Mexico that would support the growing numbers of migrants there? And we worked very closely with the Secretariat for External Relations in Mexico. And so we interviewed 91 investors, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial support organization, migrant and refugee support organizations. So if you're not that familiar or you're only hearing kind of the headlines of what's going on in Mexico, there's a lot going on in Mexico. So there's a conflict in what we call the Northern Triangle, which are uh, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. There's high levels of violence there, and people are fleeing that. At the same time, there's internal displacement from violent states inside Mexico. There's an estimated 400,000 internally displaced Mexicans. The United States has deported a lot of people. Some estimates of deportees and returnees over the past 10 years is in the 2 million mark. These are people that were raised in the United States, often only speak English, and so it's a very strange and unique situation where they're essentially refugees to their own country. They don't have networks, they don't have the language, they don't have the paperwork, they don't have certificates. And then at the same time, the U.S. is getting much stricter on who they're letting in, and we've cut our asylum numbers. And so Mexico, which used to be a sending country and a transit country where people were moving through it, is now becoming a destination country. They've just received their 80,000 asylum seekers in Mexico. And these are people that are looking now to stay in Mexico. And so the question is, with this very significant level of displacement, people that need to get involved and incorporated into the economy, could we invest in a way to include them in businesses and jobs in Mexico? And so that's what we're working on now. We're beginning to build a blueprint in partnership with the Mexican government, international and national investors, entrepreneurship support organizations, and entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized enterprises in a way that people could get included in the economy, that they can take care of themselves and their families, and they don't need to worry about their children being abducted by narco-terrorists. So this is the work we're doing now, um, and I will end on that, and I'm happy to take questions, controversial or otherwise. Thanks. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about climate change as a driver of uh, refugees. Good. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I should have mentioned that. So that's even if we take just the specific case of Mexico, that is actually one of the big drivers as well. There was a report that climate change is affecting crops in the Northern Triangle, so El Salvador, Honduras, uh, and Guatemala. And there is an increasing... Uh, problem which is likely linked to climate change, which is called uh, leaf rust, which is damaging uh, coffee crops. So Mexico and the Northern Triangle is the fifth largest producer of coffee in the world, and there have been major blights on the coffee plantations of Mexico and Northern Triangle. So that is definitely one of the drivers as well. 
Um, when we look to Africa, we know, and, and again, it's, there's different political perspectives on whether this is um, driven by a kind of climate change or if it's a shift, but there is no debate that the Sahel, which is the kind of borderline between the Sahara Desert and the once kind of verdant part of sub-Saharan Africa, has been shifting. It's been shifting significantly. So if we look at the conflicts of Sudan, of Darfur, where nomadic herders are now under pressure that they never were before, those types of climate movements uh, are significant. In the work we do, we've decided to draw the line somewhere, which is largely people that are displaced by violent conflict running for their lives. But the estimates are that by 2030, which is not that long away, we'll be at 300 million forcibly displaced people worldwide if we include climate. And so as ocean levels rise, places like Bangladesh, which are already incredibly densely populated and have their own displacement challenges like the Rohingya that have been displaced out of Myanmar into Bangladesh, uh, they're going to become much more complex um, in, in coming years. And so I think that's why, uh, kind of regardless of where you are on the climate change debate, uh, it is important to know that these numbers are already big and they're going to get bigger. And if we don't come up with a really good plan about how we incorporate people into economies and have inclusive economies where people can take care of themselves and their families, the level of strife we're going to see is going to be significant. Another thing that is important to note is when people are displaced for decades and they're not allowed to work, and especially if they're getting aid, but even if they're not getting aid, it leads to tensions with host communities. These host communities are poor. And so if they see displaced people getting any level of aid, regardless of how desperate their conditions are, it leads to tensions. And when you have more people drawing down on the same resources, on the same firewood, creating large, you know, um, kind of rubbish piles, these things, they, they create more and more tensions between host communities and the displaced. And so it's important that we develop inclusive economic strategies that both recognize the need to support the displaced as well as the communities welcoming them. Yeah. What's, your, uh, what's the other country that you mentioned? Where am I? Oh, back there. What's the other country? And I have two questions. What's the other country that you said was legal? Oh, Uganda. 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 And what's your opinion of the uh, training organization uh, World Ort? World who? Ort, O-R-T. Oh, I don't think I've come across them yet. It's, a, it's an old organization. I just uh, wondered if, if you'd had experience with it. That was started after refugees from Russia, and it does uh, training around the world to teach people skills so that they can take care of themselves. Well, and this is becoming more and more popular. I think these organizations are critically important, right? So investment matters a lot, and capital can really help host communities and host governments understand that the displaced can be an asset to economic growth. But often you need these support organizations. So especially if there's a language difference, right? So if you have... Um, Let's use an example of um, uh, Guatemalan refugees, for example, in the United States, right? They need to learn English to easily incorporate into the economy. So we, ha we see um, often churches and refugee support organizations doing that really important first level of training, which is language acquisition. Um, but there's often also a need for retooling, right? So if you've been a farmer in Guatemala, 
uh, but you move to northern Mexico and there's an opportunity to work in a VW production plant, you're going to need to get trained for that job because your experience is, is a different experience. And so those types of um, retraining and education programs are really important. And so that's why we are also working with uh, refugee and migrant support organizations. We actually, were, when we were just down in Mexico, we met with a shelter for women and children that have fled uh, El Salvador and Honduras, Guatemala, run by Catholic nuns. And they have uh, a whole social enterprise program there. They're, they have a bakery where they're teaching women that maybe didn't know how to bake, how to bake at a level that they could sell to companies and uh, bigger buyers. Uh, and they have a catering business where they're teaching life skills along with the catering business. So it's kind of a training program as well as create some revenue generation for, for the migrants and their, um, for their organization. So those are really important organizations. Um, hello. I'm wondering if you have heard of Mohammed, uh, I think it's Yunus, mm -hmm. and his social business approach. I'm wondering if you could explain that and speak more to that, because that seems very important for changes coming about, too. Sure. So Mohammed Yunus uh, received the Nobel Prize for his invention of microfinance. So if you've ever taken a loan for a car or for your house or even for a small business loan, we have a, a functioning system of credit in America, right? And you might get between 2 and 5% uh, interest rate. In many countries of the world where they don't really have a functioning credit system, people are forced to rely on loan sharks. And those interest rates can be 200%, 300%, 400%. And if you don't pay them back, they will beat you up and they could do much worse. Um, and so Mohammed Yunus, who is based in Bangladesh, had the idea of, he was looking at um, women who were weavers, and they were taking these outrageously exploitative loans at 300% to buy uh, straw, to weave baskets and little seats, and then they were selling those baskets, right? They were putting their skill and their sweat equity into it, and they were selling this, the baskets and the seats for a pretty great margin. And he realized if we just lent to them at a reasonable kind of, you know, an American rate, they'd be able to pay it back and they'd be able to put more money into their kids' food and their kids' schooling, and this could really work. But again, it took this leap of faith that poor people would pay back. And so he took that leap of faith. He, he gave his first loan of $27 out of his pocket, and it has become a multi-billion worldwide industry where it essentially looks at the poor as people that have skills and ingenuity and business acumen, and that if they're afforded uh, a loan at a reasonable rate, that they can actually build their businesses. So I actually took a team of students to Bangladesh, and we visited many of the entrepreneurs that, so he created the Grameen Bank. Grameen means village in their language. And so we met women that, they, and they, they gradually step people up a ladder. So you get a first loan and it's a small loan. It's for a chicken. And once you sell your eggs and you pay your loan back, you can get your next loan for two chickens. Then you can get a loan for a little shop, and you can keep graduating. We met a woman that had built a whole pharmacy corner store in her little town, sent both of her boys to college, and they keep track of people moving the way out of poverty. And so slowly over time, these micro-entrepreneurs get a metal roof over their head, they get a cement floor, they get beds, they get mosquito nets, their kids are healthier, their kids have better food, they get clean water. And so really quickly you see a pretty significant impact. And so that's part of the work we're doing, supporting uh, microfinance. May I, may I ask if I understand something cor correctly? 
with the social business approach, I believe all dividends go back into the, rather than going to the shareholders, the shareholders are willing to, to contribute and donate all dividends so that there isn't that kind of um, profit. Yes, idea. exactly. So after he invented microfinance, he went on to found the Unis Center, which uh, advances these larger companies that he defines very specifically as a social business. And you're correct. In his mind, a social business, 100% of profits go back into the business. So for example, he partnered with Dan and Yogurt to create a factory that creates micronutrient-rich yogurt. It fights malnutrition, so it has this huge social impact. They sell the yogurt. They don't give it away, so they sell it at an affordable rate for poor people. And then the profits come back in. They employ women in the factory, and by as it grows, they can build more factories, fight more malnutrition, hire more women, and it's this kind of you know, vi uh, a virtuous cycle. So this, when we, in social entrepreneurship at UVA, we introduce students to a full range of models. So that's one very specific one. One of the challenges with that, though, is it's difficult, if not impossible, to uh, incentivize investors to invest, right? So Dan and Yogurt did it as kind of a corporate social responsibility piece. But Let's take Bain Capital. Bain Capital has a fiduciary responsibility to get a return for their investors. They're not legally allowed to give that money away. But if they could invest in a yogurt company like uh, Chobani Yogurt, so Chobani Yogurt, who's had some Chobani Yogurt? It's nice. He is a Kurdish refugee uh, from Turkey. He has created the Tent Foundation, which is also working in this vein of trying to do an inclusive economic approach and hire refugees. I used to teach at Syracuse University, and he's actually opened up a yogurt plant in a formerly derelict part of uh, upstate New York, and he employs one-third refugees, and he employs two-thirds people that didn't have jobs before, just regular Americans that didn't have jobs before in that town. So he's a for-profit model, sells a delicious yogurt we all like, but he's also having this social impact. But it's a strictly for-profit company which people could invest in and get a return. And so... I think it's important to introduce people and students to the full range, right? You can have a nonprofit that has a revenue-generating model and is more sustainable than charity. And you can have a for-profit model that is selling a product that um, people in need need, for example. So there's examples of D-Light, which is a solar lantern. Um, it's a for-profit company, but it's helping people that live in villages with no electricity do homework into the evening, not be breathing um, kerosene and burning their kids' hands and burning their houses down, right? So it has all these positive impacts, but it's a traditional business. Uh, but it has the mission of having a social impact while making a financial return. So there's lots of really creative models out there. Mm -hmm. I'm full of uh, admiration for you and your activities. Um, trying to solve problems. To what extent, though, I wonder, do you think that the cause of the problem is due to not just climate change, but to the uh, increasing, ever-increasing population of the uh, human population of the Earth? I, I was actually just recently, uh, I was at a conference and I heard a statistic that was a little bit terrifying about uh, population projection. So I have a 19-month-old baby, and I was just thinking, her name's Murin, and I was thinking, 
we, there's so many people when I was in high school, I was in high school, and I think when she's 30, uh, the expectations are, I think, one of 10 or 15, 15 billion people. It seems really, so I think personally, I think that that's a challenge. Um, what we know, though, uh, from decades and decades of research from all over the world is that as we get girls in school and as girls have education and they understand that, not only that they understand uh, their uh, reproduction and they have access to make choices about family planning, but that as they can rise in their socioeconomic status, they don't need to have so many children, right? They don't need to have 10 children because there's, you know, we know a lot of the drivers of that. One is agricultural, right? So the more children you have, the more help you have on the farm. But it is also the case, the horrible and sad case. And I remember when I was writing my this book, I had to put it away for a little bit. If you look at the child mortality rates in some of these refugee camps, you were literally, literally cry. Like you, it's hard to write a manuscript like this. Um, and so people have many children because they know that's some of those children will die, right? So that's a pretty horrible set of decisions going into your family planning. And so as kids get healthier and as families get healthier, you can have less children, right? And those kids will thrive and they will have access to education and they'll have access to a better future. And so I do think, yes, uh, population growth is seems like a major driver of uh, our fixed resources. And um, we know one of the biggest ways to moderate that is girls' education. Question? Anyone have a comment? Hello, thank you so much for your um, research and your time today. I had a question about um, kind of where refugees are in the world, and you talked about how the vast majority of refugees are in very specific countries that tend to be near the conflict zones from which they're fleeing. Um, and kind of the limited resources that are already available and how that exacerbates um, the tensions between the local populations at, and um, those folks that have been displaced. Um, could you talk a little bit, um, if you see at all, or what organizations are doing to maybe um, encourage countries who might not be near a conflict zone to help um, in the ways either resource-wise or through refugee resettlement? Um, Sure, sure. So, um, good, really great question. So, it is really important to understand. So, the UN talks about three solutions for, for people that have run for their lives. Uh, the first is return home, right, which is like what we saw after World War II. That has become increasingly impossible. There is resettlement. So, resettlement means they take people from their country of first asylum and they resettle them in a new place like the United States. And so when I was actually at Syracuse, I ran a tutoring program for refugee children there. And we had tons of uh, Bhutanese refugees from Bhutan that had been stuck in camps in Nepal for decades and Karen and Karini refugees that had fled the violence in Burma and they had been stuck in camps in Thailand forever. Under President Bush... Uh, George W. Bush, we resettled 70,000 Bhutanese refugees and I think ultimately like 90,000 Burmese refugees. And so that's resettlement. In, for most of the past two decades, the United States has been a global leader in resettlement. We've often taken around 60 to 70,000 people, some years 50,000. 
So if you think about it, that sounds like a big number. It's about 1,000 people per state in a year. So if you think about a state like California, 1,000 new people in California isn't really going to break the bank. Um, and so we have been a leader in that, and I think it's really important work. It's a, it's a humanitarian act, um, and it shows, I think, our leadership as a, as a nation, but it's not going to solve the problem. And so at the same time, while for over the past two decades, the United States has taken on many more people than the European Union has, about, I think, maybe six or, no, actually, it's, it's probably 10 years ago, the European Union stepped up and realized that they are one of the wealthiest places on earth, and they should probably be acting a bit more like the U.S. and resettling more people, and they made a commitment to start taking more people. When the Syria crisis blew up about eight years ago, Germany really took that up significantly, right? And they, they've resettled huge amounts of people in Germany. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is an understanding that the wealthiest nations in the world need to do their part. Resettlement is an important humanitarian act, but it's not going to solve the problem. And so I do think it's critically important for countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, and then member, member states of the European Union to do their part um, from an aid standpoint. So the European Union, for example, has given, I, won't, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, tens of millions, if not, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars to Jordan to create a special economic zone where Syrian refugees can legally work aside Jordanian citizens in factories uh, in a special economic zone in Jordan. And so that's a creative way where the EU is doing its part investing in the countries that are hosting the largest portion of the displaced, which, yes, as you point out, are, are poor countries and they need our help. Uh, Can you repeat yeah. the question? Oh, yes. The question was, is there any examples of countries where the refugees have become the dominant part of the population and the original citizens have become the minority? That extreme hasn't happened yet, but there are two examples where the numbers are out of whack, which is Lebanon, which I believe one in four people in Lebanon now is a Syrian refugee. Lebanon is a very... Um, What's the correct, why would, what word would I use? Uh, it's a tenuous situation where you have different ethnic backgrounds and different religions. And so, and the just huge number of new people there has really spiked housing prices, as you might imagine. Um, and so it's tense. It's very tense. Malta is another example. Malta is a very tiny country, and there's very few citizens there. And it's on the front lines of um, the kind of, the sea flight of people. And so the numbers of refugees in Malta is, is incredibly high as well. And many people would argue, you know, people should, Europe and, and, and the other wealthy nations should be doing more to support places like Malta because they're really on the front lines. Yes, increasingly. Um, and so it was interesting, actually. We met with the pension funds in Mexico. They're changing their policies to allow pension funds to invest in both for a financial return and impact. That policy has been changed a number of years ago in the United States, so many of our pension funds can invest for both impact as well as a financial return. Uh, if you're a teacher and you're with TIA-CREF, I was at an impact investing conference in the Vatican. So the Pope or the Catholic Pope has said, you know, we have billions of dollars. 
and we shouldn't be investing it necessarily in oil and um, gun manufacturing. We should be investing it in companies that are making the world a better place. Uh, and they have a, have a focus on displacement and migration as well because there's a background in, uh, you know, in the Bible about the idea of, of supporting the other. So, yes, increasingly, Bain has a Bain double capital piece. So many of the asset companies are now doing um, one of two things. They have ESG investing, which is environmental, social, and governance investing. This is often kind of screening out bad companies. Uh, and then impact investing, we usually use that term to designate investing in a company that has an active mission to have a positive social environmental impact. So yeah, you can actually reach out to your asset manager and just say, hey, are, is my retirement being invested in companies that are making the world a better place? Uh, and they should be able to help you. Here and here and here. Yes, well, so George Soros committed $500 million to invest in refugee entrepreneurs, and so he has a whole team of people looking at doing that. Um, I know the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is doing this type of impact investing in the United States. They're investing in affordable housing in places like um, the Bay Area. So there's definitely the Gene and Steve Case are, you know, they were co-founders of America Online. They're, invest, they're major impact investors. They're not only investing their own money in social impact, but they have a foundation that supports social entrepreneurs and impact investments. And Gene Case has actually served on national, um, you know, national U.S. government task forces, which have looked at our policies that allow uh, allow asset managers and investors to invest with this double double impact goal. Mm-hmm. We've got to wrap up. Oh, so, okay. um, <laughs> if you've got questions, I can answer them. Yeah, she'll be around. Um, we've got the bookstore open here selling books, and she might sign a few. Mm-hmm. So on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, thank you. <laughs> oh, and we're giving away the raffle today is Christine's book, so if you want to do the honors. <laughs> and our winner is BJ Remza. Excellent. Great. Thank you all. Have a good day.